Hello and welcome to this WRI podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this episode we're looking at the critical issue of air quality and its relationship to the COVID crisis. We recently held a public webinar on the issue as part of our Build Back Better series and this is a shortened version of what was discussed then. First up is Jessica Seddon who leads WRI's work on air quality. One of the things that's happened over the, over the last months is that I think we've all become much more acutely aware of breathing as we should be, um, as we always should have been. I mean, we breathe 2,000 gallons of air a day, enough to fill a swimming pool. Um, It passes over 1,500 miles of airways within our lungs, our lungs filtering out pollutants, uh, anything that's in the air beyond oxygen, carbon dioxide, et cetera. I think the interest in having uh, cleaner air for climate, for forest and vegetation health, for agriculture, for many other reasons is rising. But the crux of the issue is really how to get that cleaner air. And when you look at it, asking for clean air is a bit like asking for equality. It's it's very important. However, some of the roots of air pollution, and particularly when you're looking at not just particulate matter, but also health damaging ozone, uh, the class of of pollutants, air toxics associated with with cancer, with um, not only premature death, but also ongoing vulnerability to respiratory illness. Uh, When you look at how to get cleaner air, it's you start to have to look at a little bit broader set of sources. So there are the sources that we all know about, the sources that are in the headlines, the sources that are immediately visible. Particles are visible, gases are not always. But beneath that, there are many other sources of pollution that are significant, that are scientifically well established, that are not on the tops of people's minds. And I think one of the focus, one of the the things that we're we're doing in our air quality program is to be able to uh, look more closely, realistically, and in line with much of the established science at what are the sources of air pollution and what can we do about them. Um, Atmospheric chemistry and some of the sources are not on the tops of people's minds, but we never really gained anything by ignoring reality. It's still very much there. So the three pillars of our air pollution program are number one is to be able to advance access to source attribution, to advance, to to make some of the science behind identification of the pollution sources that matter for particular places and seasons, to make sure that those are actually much more visible and to raise awareness of those sources so that we can convert the demand for cleaner air into awareness and focus on specific solutions. The second piece of our program is recognizing another reality, which is that air moves across boundaries and atmospheric chemistry combines emissions across sectors. Just because we divide ourselves into energy, agriculture, transport, et cetera, and we divide ourselves into the city boundary and the periphery, air doesn't do that. And so we have a second pillar that's looking at governance innovations about how do we work across boundaries, across scales, and to look at multi-sector innovations. And I'm hoping that the panelists will discuss some of those, that way of working and some of the innovations in terms of working together that have delivered solutions. The last piece in this is that 
the combination of being able to sharpen the focus to reduce the governance frictions to working together means that we have much more time to do what we really do know how to do. The solutions for clean air in terms of what we need to do about mobility, agriculture, consumption, energy are not unknown and hopefully the impetus to actually act on them now that we're much more acutely aware of the personal as well as environmental costs will rise. Jessica Seddon. Next, Tim Searchinger of WRI and Princeton University on the importance of agriculture in air quality. I want to mention three issues. One is that agriculture has a very specific and potentially harsh effect on clean air through a biomass burning. And we're all probably aware by this point of the huge problems that you get in Delhi and other parts of India around Delhi that are due to burning of crop residues. And the question is, what do we need to do to stop that? And it's not a high tech issue probably. The, the challenge is that farmers have a limited amount of time in which to go from one crop to another. And the easiest way to do that is simply to burn their residues. And the solutions there, most crop residues are not in fact burned. And the solution is to find quick ways of removing that crop residue and turning it into some kind of useful product. Biochar is one possibility. Biofuels are a harder one. So we need to find new economic uses of that material that justify the added effort to get it removed. But one thing we also don't want to do, the second thing I want to mention is we don't generally want to move in the direction of biofuels and biomass. And we've elsewhere at WRI published why that doesn't actually benefit greenhouse gas emissions because essentially the estimates that do ignore the opportunity cost of land, that we use land to produce bioenergy is a benefit, but the cost is not using it for other purposes, including forest to store carbon. But that one of the problems as well is that when you combust biomass, you still get air pollution. And that's whether it's in the form of liquid biofuels, but even worse when you're burning wood for uh, electricity. Agriculture also can be a significant contributor to air pollution through ammonia emissions. So of course, agriculture relies heavily on nitrogen fertilizer and about 20% of all the nitrogen fertilizer applied to crop fields is released as the form of ammonia. And then on top of that, we get an additional significant amount of ammonia released from big manure piles from concentrated uh, animal feedlots. So this can be a big source of, of particulate pollution, including uh, in China, and where there are papers that have shown that about a, if you could reduce that nitrogen pollution by 50%, you get about a 15% reduction in this uh, small particle pollution. But the key point, because I have some little time I just want to make, is that in order to achieve these reductions at a larger scale, we need to pursue the most innovative forms of nitrogen management. And the basic reason is this that we're going to produce about 50% more food in 2050 than we did in 2010. And we already are awash in nitrogen. On a present course, that means 50% more nitrogen. Even if you use a lot of conventional measures to reduce your, uh, your nitrogen use by a third per unit, that still means that basically we'll have the same amount of nitrogen we have today. So there are opportunities in agriculture to reduce nitrogen losses a lot. They're fairly low tech in uh, animal agriculture. You cover your lagoons or your storage tanks and you can separate liquids from solids and control that. You can acidify a bit. And the real issue there is that we have essentially allowed 
manure facilities to go almost uncontrolled. But for crop fields, we need to do more. And there are opportunities, I'll just mention a few. So even today, you could greatly reduce ammonia losses by applying something called urease inhibitors, which are compounds that go with the fertilizer that limit ammonia losses. There are other kinds of inhibitors that can reduce other losses and thereby result in a less need to apply fertilizer to begin with. There are cover crops that can, among other things, help to retain the, uh, the nitrogen in the soil so you don't need to apply as much fertilizer over time. And there are now some really exciting new technologies. Some companies, particularly one that seems to be on the road toward finding microbes that you can apply to crops that don't fix their own nitrogen that allow them to fix maybe 50% of their nitrogen, which could mean a 50% reduction in fertilizer use. So the only issue I'll leave you with is that a, the growing, continued growing nitrogen use in agriculture is a significant contributor, particularly to small particle air pollution. And we need to reduce that nitrogen use to solve climate change, to reduce water pollution. But the people in the air business have a big stake in that too. That was Tim Searchinger. Next, let's see what the air quality issue has looked like on the ground with Caroline Urrutier of Bogota, Colombia. What we've seen in Bogota is extremely interesting. Over the past five, six years, we've had considerable citizen movements regarding air quality that we didn't have before. And what's really interesting is that they have not only worked on advocacy, but on citizen science, which I think is going to be a key factor in terms of how local governments look at this issue in the future. If we let citizens monitor their own air quality inside their homes on their way to work while they're riding their bike, I think we're gonna see a more significant movement towards behavioral change. Because of course there's demand for clean air, but it's not as clear what sacrifices people are willing to make. And this is of course an issue that is not really controlled centrally by the city government. We can regulate and we can provide incentive structures, but most of the change is going to depend on individual choices, particularly in cities like Bogota in terms of transport. We actually had a pretty bad air quality period throughout the beginning of the year. We had to declare to what we call here yellow alerts. We actually restrict transport modes and have private cars circulate only twice or three times a week. We took motorbikes out of the streets in late February and the beginning of March. In the beginning of quarantine, we were surprised because our air quality wasn't improving quickly enough. But what we learned through quarantine was that agriculture was significantly affecting Bogota's air quality. First of all, because of um, agricultural um, burning, just to prepare the land before the rainy season and possibly due to other factors, including nitrogen interventions. We're not quite sure, but both Bogota and Medellin were kind of surprised because over the first three weeks of quarantine, the air in our cities was not improving quickly enough. And we had the vehicles that we had on the streets were really under 10% of what we usually had. So this has been really interesting and it's an issue we're working on with local academics to ensure that we do have the technology in our air quality monitoring systems. Bogota has a really good uh, monitoring network, so does Medellin. But we've, we've been basically looking at fossil fuel burning and not really at other factors and especially other regional factors that could be contrib contributing to our air quality. So that's been really interesting. 
We did, of course, see significant improvement in on air quality. It's been something that our citizens have been actively commenting on. And of course, the, the question that we hear constantly is, how are we going to make sure that this good air quality remains? And I'm afraid we don't really have an answer to that because the economic concerns and the way our, our, our local economy has been really hard hit by COVID-19 is not going to really make it easy for us to impose additional restrictions throughout the first few weeks after lockdown. We already have around 60% of our economy working. The results on air quality haven't really been disastrous yet, but I think once lockdown ends, we're going to see a, a spike in air quality. Of course, I want to explain briefly that this yellow alert moments in the year have been highly attributed to weather, low temperatures in the morning, high temperatures in the afternoon. So the weather is helping us a lot more now. We have a lot more rain and we're going into the rainy season and it's probably going to be better general conditions for air quality. But still, I do think it's going to be very hard for local governments to impose restrictions on transportation once people start moving, especially if, if we want to impose restrictions on cars. People are really hesitant to go into public transport and they're going to be hesitant to do that over the next few months. So it's going to be hard to get them to, to leave their cars parked at home once they start going to work. In terms of this regional awareness that we have now, we also had a chance to compare with Cali. Cali is at a, in the south of the country and its air trajectories during that period came more from Central America, specifically from Panama, and they did not have the same air quality conditions. So we are seeing this result of poor agricultural practices in Venezuela, in the north and south of Colombia, affecting major cities. And it is an issue that we want to work mostly with our local universities in determining whether this was an exceptional point in time or whether this is repeated annually, depending on, on the weather. Caroline Urrutia. Finally, we have a few short reflections from members of the panel. You'll hear from Blas Perez Hernandez of Stanford University on the situation in California, as well as more from Caroline Urrutia and Tim Searchinger. First up is Matty Stanislaus of the Global Battery Alliance on the question of how air quality issues are dealt with in the stimulus packages being put together to respond to the COVID crisis. There are active conversations in various pockets of the globe of the various stimulus resources for the recovery. And how do we recover, not for status quo, but in a specific way to rebuild better and have some tough conversations of what that means? Because there are a lot of pressure to rebuild in the status quo, just to restart the engine, as opposed to really being thoughtful of what is a clean rebuild. And it's gonna require a lot of pressure to redirect those resources in a cleaner way, more responsible way. I agree there's a tendency to rebuild quick, cheap, and fast. California, after the deadly fires that happened here in uh, Napa Valley, you know, you would think that you would start rebuilding with a much more fire resilient infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, but that adds to cost. And California now has a climate investment fund for these transformations, but California just went from a 20 plus billion budget surplus to a 57 budget deficit. And that's going to matter in terms of investment and what can government do and all these kind of things. So it's a, it's a tough spot we're going to be uh, facing in the, as we reopen the economy. Also, this has affected a lot of the startups, smaller companies that were working in the transformation of the energy systems. A lot of them had to close down, furloughs, 
there's an opportunity, but it's going to be a tough spot from where you start. So my two cents on the agriculture side is simply that it would be great to have people weighing in. You know, for agriculture, it is not the biggest technological obstacle to just stop burning your crop residues. And you're probably, my guess is, I'd be curious how that some of the problems in Colombia might be related to burning forests. And we know how to stop doing that. And that's a political question. I know in the U.S., the amount of attention paid to the farm bill by people interested in clean air is next to zero. So I think that uh, maybe just having some beginning of focus could help. And I also wish that burning forest was easier to solve, Tim. We know how to do it, but land grabbing is such a huge issue in Latin America that there really is very little government control. One of the things that we discussed with Medellin when we saw our air quality not actually improve, but get worse at the beginning of quarantine was, what can we say to the national government? Asking them to put out fires is kind of ridiculous in our local situation. And asking them to solve the structural issues that are related to land grabbing, which is the main reason why we're burning forests in Colombia, is like asking them to solve, you know, it's like a, a, a beauty pageant question. What would you do for world peace? It's a political will issue because most land grabbing occurs because people want to then claim ownership of the land. So there's a very simple mechanism, which is you don't recognize ownership of the land. And if you make it impossible for people to transfer the land, it won't stop it completely. People will grab land to use temporarily. But the way of doing it to be able to claim long-term ownership, which is a big driver, uh, you could, in fact, kind of stop. So if I can add, I also serve as an advisor to a nutrition climate coalition in the United States. And what is not talked much about is the market pull of, of diet, right? and the subsidies that drive choices. You know, I think as Tim noted, you know, the strongest lobby in Congress is the agricultural lobby, you know, and the consumers and people are outside of that mix. So th there's real importance to, to drive the message about the importance of diet, diet choices, enabling the diversity of choice and its consequence on climate change. And there's the bubbling up of these discussions both in the United States and globally, about that issue. That was Matty Stanislaus. you find plenty more on the big environmental issues of our age, including air quality and other challenges facing the world's cities, on our website, wri.org. There's also a Build Back Better section, looking specifically at the COVID crisis and the questions it's throwing up, including podcasts on themes from food to urban transport to stimulus programmes. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.